0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be, and welcome to this rotating program, tour de force on this rotating globe tonight, or tomorrow morning. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that kind of magical time where, well, you know, you've heard that spiel before, all the stuff that used to happen safely confined to this time of night. It's now spilling out all over the floor and it's going on 24 7. And oh my God, cats and dogs living together. Hey, tonight's show, and I say tonight because here we are in the land of enchantment with a gorgeous moon out there. Um, tonight's show is, is going to be one for the record books. I have been trying to get uh, my guest tonight on this program literally for years. And our schedules simply did not coincide. And so tonight, after an extraordinary amount of effort and anticipation, he is here. And my rundown of some of the news items is going to all kind of funnel into what Richard and I are going to talk about for the uh, rest of this three hours once I you know, get through the, the top of the show here, um, as, as, as you will see. For, we're going to start with some very sad news Someone that I have admired uh, for years, Sir Sean Connery, you know James Bond, the original James Bond, um, died yesterday at the age of 90, and he had an extraordinary career. If you click on that BBC link, which is item number one, Radio with Pictures, and for all you new folks, you know the way you get to our Radio with Pictures page is you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on. Um, The um, uh, link there at the top, which says, he said, scrolling in real time, is a Nazi breakaway space civilization responsible for COVID-19 with the name Richard Dolan prominently at the top. Click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Scroll down, you can actually click on the Fast Links items under the... um, Uh, Banner there at the top of the guest page. Click on Hoagland. That will take you to my items. And there is a very uh, elegant story um, from the BBC on the life and times of Sir Sean Connery. Now, the reason this is incredibly ironic is because Sean Connery starred in this series of Ian Fleming films that basically, against the backdrop of the Cold War, made repeated credible cases for private parties, private groups, private institutions, non-governmental—you um, know, kind of like um, what do they call those at the UN? Uh, other than go- governmental institutions, that that entity could rise up with sufficient knowledge and influence and power to threaten the stability of the world that was the whole theme of all those repeated james bond films those wonderful you know totally out of the water films and that's kind of what i'm going to be proposing tonight in our discussion regarding covid-19 and the breakaways etc and the current state of the entire UFO uh, cultural uh, investigation, it's kind of like we're going to come at it from a Bond film perspective. Because when all is said and done, it could be that the actors behind the current extraordinary turmoil going on here on planet Earth tonight are not, in fact, governmental entities at all in the sense that we understand them. I mean, of late, you know, the president has been blaming China for the so-called China virus. Well, I'm going to probably upend that whole discussion tonight by raising the question when we get to that part of the program. Is it possible that China, instead of being the perpetrator, uh, even accidentally, of this catastrophe, was in fact its first victim? We'll pursue with evidence that line of questioning as the uh, evening and or morning, depending upon where you are, uh, unfolds. (laughs) Item number two, my items. NASA has found more water on the moon. And if you click on link number two, there's a very interesting story from Time magazine. This was done uh, from Earth uh, with a very sophisticated... Uh, 747, NASA converted into a flying uh, above 45,000 feet observatory. It's called Sophia. That's an acronym. It's got a very large mirror. I forget the size of the mirror, but it's a really decent, large telescope flying anywhere on Earth, which means it can track occultations. It can look at objects in the infrared from such altitudes that most of the earth's water vapor is below the airplane which means it can scan planetary or targets or or the moon above most of the earth's water vapor and so what it did over the last couple three years was to make observations <clears throat> of an area on the earth side of the moon near the crater clavius and we'll get back to clavius in a moment why that's intriguing anyway it scanned clavius crunched the data, and came up with a publication a few days ago uh, that, in fact, they found water in Clavius on the moon. Now, water on the moon, in any man's or woman's projection of how we utilize the moon for the economic infrastructure of Earth, is vital, critical, absolutely essential, amazingly breakthrough developmentally, because you can't have humans without water, you can't have technology without water. You can't have energy without water. You can't have rockets without water because water is, with the application of energy, i.e. solar energy, can become hydrogen and oxygen. And recombining those does a whole bunch of amazing things, including produce energy, fuel cells, uh, breathable you know, atmosphere, oxygen, and um, hydrogen, oxygen, uh, chemical rockets. And uh, that's after you split the water with the application of solar energy. So, water in situ on the moon is worth its weight in platinum, or maybe gold plated latinum, <clears throat> you know, lapsing over into Star Trek. The point is, it's, it's a huge discovery. <clears throat> it's coming perfectly positioned just before the big push in the NASA Artemis missions to the moon to be returning. Americans by 2024, a timetable which is very aggressive. Or the other possibility is it's going to be of use for private industry. Look at Elon Musk. Look at his development of the Starship. Look at his contract with NASA under the Artemis program to develop the lunar lander that the astronauts will descend <clears throat> from the gateway orbiting the moon to the lunar surface in the Artemis. Uh, Lunar Return architecture. Anyway, all of that is contained as implications in that story that NASA's found more water on the moon because it's worth its weight in the most extraordinarily valuable commodity you can imagine. Okay, item number three, three and four. As you may or may not know, we have a spacecraft, an unmanned robot tonight, which is out something like 200 million miles away from the Earth orbiting a little tiny rock in space about the size of the Empire State Building, like a 1,000 feet across, called Bennu. And it doesn't look like the Empire State Building. In fact, it looks like a very, very, very eroded octahedron. Remarkable geometry, which has been reinforced by a whole bunch of other measurements. Of course, NASA's not going to admit that it's mission called OSIRIS-REx. OSIRIS? Orion, anyone? Rex? King? Leader? Ruler? Um, That its spacecraft, OSIRIS-REx, is in fact uh, orbiting an artificial object. But from our independent research, yes, it is. And these two images that were taken as the uh, OSIRIS-REx spacecraft was collecting a sample of rubble from the surface in a very dicey but elegant touchdown maneuver a few days ago. The first photo is the uh, robot arm with the round collector at the end, extending down from the spacecraft from the left-hand side in the frame just before touchdown. That's the background of Bennu beneath the uh, artificial geometry of the Rex uh, collector uh, head. The second photo, which is item number four, shows the, the uh, uh, surface of Bennu at the moment of touchdown when, according to a pre-programmed computer program, a burst of nitrogen was released through the head of the collector, the idea being that by creating a brief artificial atmosphere swirling around in a bubble under the collector head above the surface, a whole bunch of material would be entrained in the resulting vortex and would, like a vacuum cleaner, be sucked into orifices in the collector head that would then allow that material, those samples, to be deposited in the spacecraft that is going to return to planet Earth in the next couple of years. Well, as you can see from that frame, when they released that burst of nitrogen, a whole bunch of stuff got blown up, meaning you know, lifted from the surface. Because remember, the gravity field of Bennu is one one hundred thousandths the gravity field you're experiencing right now here on planet Earth. One one hundred thousandths. No wonder there's this sudden cloud of debris. Anyway, um, if you click on these uh, these two links, um, it will show you the more detail. I guess we don't have the link directly up that will take you to the NASA website showing you the actual film. Uh, We will put that up as, let's say, 4A after the program. Item number five. This is where things get very, very interesting very, very quickly. Uh, Item number five is a graph I used a few shows ago uh, to mark something I had discovered which was so unbelievable, so astonishing, so out of the box that I literally spent months tracking down details and checking on the authenticity of the raw data coming into the European CDC, etc., etc., before I went on the air a couple of weeks ago and talked about this this graph. This is a graph of COVID deaths, COVID-19 deaths, worldwide from the beginning of the pandemic back in January, February, all over the world to October uh, 20th. Uh, I didn't make a new graph because the pattern just continues. Now, what's so stunning is that you can see that that line is not a smooth curve or even a somewhat jagged curve, but it's an intensely rhythmic, periodic curve. And the distance between the peaks and the valleys, which repeat every seven days. Let me repeat that. Between the peaks and the valleys is a spacing of every seven days. The peaks represent the maximum death count per day on the graph, and the valleys represent the minimum death count per day on the graph. And for some reason, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, these are synchronized in 188 Countries all over the planet reporting daily their COVID 9 cases from all over the world. Now, for those people who are suspecting there are all kinds of conspiracies lurking between COVID 19, yes, there are. And tonight we're going to discuss them, but not the ones a lot of you think there are. I mean, the level of conspiracy and ultimate objective here so far transcends what has been kind of viewed publicly so far. And we're going to try to enlighten you about some of the details and the documentation that supports this conclusion that it makes everybody's pet conspiracy theory, ranging from Bill Gates to doctors are making an extra two grand per COVID patient who dies, you know, really kind of pale by comparison. The real conspiracy is much more important interesting and potentially catastrophic if it is allowed to continue moving on down item number six this is the actual link to the cdc in europe which compiles these statistics there is an interactive graph when you click on that link which will take you to that daily world death curve death plot uh, death uh, well spiral is not totally accurate The point is you can do these comparisons for yourself. You don't need to trust me or anybody else that people on the opposite sides of the world simultaneously are surviving or dying in synchronization, which by any science we think we know is impossible. Now, the second part of this discovery, which I was very hesitant to even bring up a couple, three weeks ago, because I wanted to spend more time researching it. And again, we don't have the link up there. We'll put that up as 6A when we update this for the uh, Club 19.5 archive. If you plot at the similar scale to the death, rise, and fall, um, item number five, if you plot that set of graphs, you find something even more bewilderingly unbelievable and inexplicable which is that the daily count of new cases of the coronavirus this is you know uh, a medical person sticking a very long you know um swab up your nose and trying to get a sample of the virus and then putting it into a container and then taking it to a pcr lab where they amplify the dna actually the rna of the coronavirus and that tells them how much virus you have in your system. And there's a whole bunch of controversies about that. And we don't have time to get into tonight, you know, the all the details. The point is, that's the kind of general assay of whether there is or is not a patient in front of them who has COVID. Well, there's been something very weird because if you had a rising pool of increasingly infected people, even if you had a um, rising number of tests the curve you would expect would be a accelerating curve for exponential growth or a flat curve if the virus transmissions and tracing and and quarantining was working properly but instead we see a curve which has jagged ups and downs with exactly the same 7 day Periodicity that we see in the death curves from COVID 19. And that, on the face of it, is just nuts. I mean, there's a more technical term, but I'll just use the colloquial. It's nuts. This is not the way chemistry is supposed to work. In other words, and this is the blindingly breakthrough discussion which needs to be held around this aspect of COVID 19. If you go in to be tested for COVID-19 on any random day, if it's toward Thursday or Friday, your detection probability is way higher by a factor of two or three than if you get tested on a uh, Sunday or a Monday, which is nuts and the two curves, the death curves, the rise and fall of those peaks, and the COVID detection curves for the virus in random collections of people, the population all over the world is rising and falling in the same resonance pattern. And that is impossible unless there is something truly extraordinary about COVID-19 going on going back to a discussion I had with Joseph Farrell on this many, many, many months ago, and yes, I'm gonna to try to get him back on to discuss this. Anyway, item number seven, there is an actual paper called Oscillatory Dynamics in Infectivity and Death Rates of COVID nineteen. Click on that. It's by three authors, one at the University of Haifa in Israel, two others at the University of Illinois in Chicago, one in the Department of Chemistry, the other a physicist in the Department of Physics, and you can bet your bottom dollar that I'm aggressively going after one of these authors, co-authors, to get them on the show to talk about the details because, and this is so important, I mean, remember, science is nothing if it's not independent confirmation. So if you go to that paper, click on that paper, you know, there is something really amazing that they say toward the end of their, uh, shall we say, opening. And I'm scrolling down here. I'm looking for it. Of course, when you're you know, looking for things in real time on the radio, um, it's very, very uh, hard to sometimes uh, find exactly what you're looking for. So I'm looking for this particular, because this was such an extraordinary statement for, oh, here we are. Got it, got it. They they go into circadian rhythms, they go into other periodicities, they go into harmonics, subharmonics, and overtone harmonics. It is particularly striking, the authors say, that the periodicities of COVID-19, infectivity, and death rates are almost in phase. And the same pattern is separately followed by very different countries. And here comes the capper. Even though these effects could be to some extent caused by periodic oscillations in human measuring and reporting of these events, we cannot exclude more profound reasons for these observations. Can anyone say torsion field physics? In other words, i got to get these guys on the show because this is... I mean, they had no idea I exist. I had no idea until I set Ron on looking for this uh, that uh, they existed. And lo and behold, they're looking at exactly the same data. And there's a lot of very cool graphs. Just scroll down. Comparisons, discussion. Uh, the one thing they don't talk about is what needs to be done next to get, kind of get to the bottom of this. It could be that this paper is kind of a prelude to an application for grant. But wouldn't it be interesting if we could get them to seriously look at the idea that there is another underlying planetary slash solar system physics, which is driving this disease in ways that, I mean, one almost cannot even imagine. So we will kind of leave that there. What you want to do now is you want to go back to the other side of midnight to the guest page. Item number eight, um, there are COVID patients, COVID-19 patients called long haulers. The, the statistics now from a couple of studies that I saw the last week, <clears throat> about 30% of people who develop symptoms, and remember, a lot of people are asymptomatic and never get symptoms. But those that do, and this seems to be irrespective of age, they develop what's being called in the medical community a brain fog. They literally can't think. Um, and I believe me, I know what that feels like. That's what happens when I get those terrible headaches. And if this goes on long enough, I mean, we now have 9 million, give or take, recorded COVID uh, patients or people who have, you know, showed genetically the disease in their bloodstream of those Let's say 50, 60% develop symptoms. Of those, 30% had long-term impact where they can't think. I mean, how can you function? How can you hold down a job if you can't think? Which raises, of course, the question, what was the purpose of COVID-19? Remember, our model, based on a bunch of independent data, is this was designed. This did not come from a random crossing of bats and other species in a Wuhan you know, market. It was designed. Now, in that vein, there are discussions about it was designed by the Chinese, it escaped from the Wuhan lab, and we all know the rest of the story. I have a very different take on it. I My take is it's very possible within the data we currently have that, in fact, the Chinese were deliberately targeted as the first victims. And you may ask very logically, good grief, why? That we will get to in the next two and a half hours. Finally, item number nine. When looking at the potential impacts, one of the things I speculated about uh, many months ago is that maybe that there's an aspect of COVID-19 that makes the human race sterile. If anybody in the audience is a follower or fan of Stargate SG-1, Remember there, was, there were several episodes about the Ashen, a highly advanced species in the galaxy to which uh, SG-1 made contact, and under the pretense of friendly diplomatic relations and establishing you know, educational uh, exchange of di- di- diplomats and scholars, etc., etc., the Ashen tried to send a bioweapon through the Stargate, unbeknownst to anyone on Earth, that would have effectively eliminated the human race by making them all sterile. If there was an enemy out there tonight, as we have mused, if there in fact is some group, some institution, some non-terrestrial governmental actor capable of A, spaceflight, B, extraordinarily advanced biological research see access to the ancient wonders and scientific and technological treasures of a formerly inhabited solar system, which of course is the backdrop of this discussion, it is perfectly possible that this extraterrestrial source is the progenitor of what is currently infecting planet Earth, and as I've been saying relentlessly for weeks... We need to figure out what the ultimate objective of this planetary assault all over the world, but particularly segregated to one hemisphere, the northern hemisphere, which raises interesting questions regarding sources, origins, and modes of delivery. Why is Europe, which was so good at effectively killing this many months ago, why is it suddenly having eruptions where both Macron and Johnson are locking down France and Britain in desperation, in panic? What is panicking them when they did everything right and up until the last few weeks, their curves were really, really small and flat? Is it possible that an injection, a booster of the infection in the chandra Wickramasinghe model has literally been injected again into the Northern Hemisphere? And if it had been, would anybody notice? Because, of course, no one except us is raising the serious prospect backed by real scientific evidence that the problem we are dealing with in COVID-19 is light years beyond most people's apprehension or appreciation of what we're truly facing. Because if you wanted, and I'll leave it with this, if you wanted someday to move in on planet Earth and take the planet without firing a shot, all you do is destroy civilization by allowing people not the capability of reproduction. It'll take a generation or two, but maybe some folks have a very, very long view of history. Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour, I believe, yes, and we're going to take a break here. My guest this morning, I'll we'll introduce him after we make the turn here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and you all recognize this. <laughs>
1: clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news.
0: The other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, 2 hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it and your own peril. Richard Dolan is a leading researcher, historian, and writer on the subject of UFOs. He's the author of two volumes of history, UFOs and the National Security State, both groundbreaking works which together provide the most factually complete and accessible narrative of the UFO subject available anywhere. He also co-authored a speculative book about the future, A.D. After Disclosure, the first ever analysis not only of how UFO secrecy might end, but of the all-important question, what happens next? Richard is also the author of UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, a fresh treatment of the entire subject, and in it he discusses the important sightings, the encounters, the politics, the cover-ups, the ancient aliens, the bizarre science, disclosure, and offers advice on being both critical and open-minded in today's very confusing media world. More recently, Richard has written a series of booklets developed from select lectures on such topics as the idea of a secret space program and UFO secrecy and disclosure in the Trump era. Um, prior to his uh, interest in UFOs, Richard completed his graduate work at the University of Rochester, where he studied U.S. Cold War strategy European History, and International Diplomacy. Before that, he studied at Alfred University and Oxford University and was a finalist for a Rhodes Scholarship. But in the past two decades, Richard has a dedicated student of all things related to UFOs, steadily expanding his interests within that topic from his initial focus on government documents and cover-up, and now his interests include it all, from the deepest aspects of the cover-up To Contact and Abduction, The Science Behind the Phenomenon, How the Phenomenon Was Affected World Culture, His Theory of the Breakaway Civilizations, and Possible Relationship of AI, Artificial Intelligence, and Biotechnology to the UFO Phenomenon, concluding, if not limited to, the Implications of a World of Secrecy, that is, the World After Disclosure, when it all finally comes Apparent, Richard Dolan, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Boy, I have been chasing you for years. You know, the last time you and I were together, and this is kind of sensitive, but it was that extraordinary night in Amsterdam. Yes, remember that? I do. And we all were at this conference, amazing conference. It was back in twenty eleven. I think yeah, twenty eleven. And um, I didn't know you were going to follow me on stage. I (laughs) apologize. I really didn't. They didn't tell me. You know, these people, the organizers were so well-meaning. And they literally went out of their... I mean, European hospitality is amazing. Robin and I had this most extraordinary set of adventures in in Amsterdam around that conference. But tell everybody what she did at that late night when we all broke up. Because remember, we had it in two parts where we had kind of presentations, and then we broke for dinner or something, and then we had long discussions, and it went late, and every restaurant around where the conference was being held was closed. So what did Robin do? Robin
1: organized, and I don't know how much of the cooking she did. I think a lot. I know she ran a a meal, a banquet, I guess we could say, for quite a few of us. There was you, there was me, there was – uh, I think Tim Good was there, am I right? And yep. also Peter Lavenda. Yep. Uh, we were the four speakers for that, and you know, all a bunch of other folks were there. Who people of the and, conference yeah, Robin, attendees. Robin
0: was the general. She, she took over. Oh my! It was she, she took field. over this totally strange kitchen <clears throat> in the Netherlands. In the hotel. In the middle in the of the hotel night. Kitchen. And we had this incredible, you know, early morning breakfast, and you know, Robin was kind of like the Pearl Mesta, <clears throat> hearkening back to a bygone age. Anyway, that was the last time you and I were physically together in the same room. Nine years. That's, 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 that's amazing. Anyway, um, for a lot of people that, that tune into the show all over the world, because we're in 190-some countries and they tune in and tune out and they listen to Club 19.5 and it's asynchronous, who is Richard Dolan? How did Richard Dolan, you know, academic, get into the bizarre, out of, you know, normal reality strangeness, as as uh, Linda calls it, high strangeness, of the whole UFO craziness. How'd that well, start?
1: It's been, it's been an amazing journey, Richard. I, gosh, 30 years ago, let's say I'm a 58 now. So when I was in my 20s, I was going on a fairly standard academic career path, I thought, Uh, My field of study was always history. I love history, and um, I went through a lot of deep study of European history that includes German and Russian history, and then I switched over into U.S. diplomatic history, Cold War primarily, but uh, included a lot of American history and a lot of world history in general, and I was working on a doctoral dissertation in the early 1990s on uh, the presidency of Harry Truman. And his Cold War strategy. I can't believe it. I look back on this, I think, wow, what a what a world that was for me.
0: And I was writing
1: a Well let, a let, let, let me stop you there.
0: You know, that's very relevant. Do you know who Scarborough just wrote a big book about? Truman. Who, who who did? Joe Scarborough, MSNBC anchor, NBC and all that political. He ran for Congress and was a yeah. uh, Florida Congressman many years ago. Yeah. Anyway, he's got this book on Truman which, of course, is the anchor for where everything goes cattywampus.
1: Well, yeah, Truman is a foundation for really a lot of our modern modern presidency, even though he himself, uh, I think, had a lot of reservations about things toward the end of his life. But I was doing a, a lot of research on Truman circa 1950, just at the outbreak of the Korean War, and a lot of policy toward now, the Now, was this when
0: you were in grad school? Yeah, Okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: back at the University of Rochester, and um, that was going along pretty well. I had – I wrote I, – I never finished that dissertation, but I wrote about 100 pages of it. And I was in a bookstore in uh, – I wish I could actually remember the year. If I really thought this through, I could, but I think 1993 or so. And I saw a copy of Tim Good's Above Top Secret ah. on a shelf. It was on a display. The book was still fairly now, new wait, old though, at though five at, years old. At,
0: at this point, you were totally into real word, you know, what is it, Kissinger used to call real politique. You, oh, yeah. you weren't in, into UFOs. I books
1: by Kissinger back you, then. You weren't into UFOs uh, at all. No, I wasn't a I was never a diehard skeptic though. I should really mention that. I was, I was one of those people who was just on the fence and didn't really have any knowledge one way or the other. Hmm, so hmm. I didn't. Think that I qualified you knew the phenomenon
0: existed you knew there were arguments on both sides and it was kind of the one of these you know things where well time will tell
1: yeah I think so I remember picking up uh, Tim goods book which is a big fat classic really and I remember flipping through the pages thinking wow he's actually really trying to make a case here so I, I like I knew this guy's name that he was writing about and I knew that guy's name and I'd read all about this department and he's really looking into uh, something of like an official governmental interest from around the world in UFOs. That was the the kind of tone of that book. And I had this, I don't know what, if it's an epiphany or what it was, but I just thought, wait, 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 wait. I'm tired of not knowing. I'm tired of having a big question mark hang over my head on this very interesting question. Because even in the early 90s, people had been talking for years about a UFO cover-up. I, I had heard that you know, the 1940s was supposedly a big time for all of this, and I was studying the 1940s and the 1950s, and I thought if there's anything at all to this, if there's any interest – So in 1947,
0: by, the National Security Act, et cetera, et cetera. Yes,
1: absolutely. So if there was any interest by these players in flying saucers or UFOs, then the only question that I had at that moment was why had I never read about this in any uh-huh. academic history book? How could that not be interesting? The question. Even if it was a mistake – on their part if they were interested in these flying saucers i i considered that that was noteworthy and i i said so i bought the book and i just wanted to answer for myself if this was um if this was a thing if this was a historical uh reality and i wasn't even Honestly, I got so slowly into the subject, I was not even asking if UFOs were real, if aliens were real. And I certainly didn't want to get into any of the weird stuff like abductions or uh, crop circles or anything that was off off the beaten path. I was just like all nuts and bolts.
0: You know, 90s was the time when crop circles made their sudden appearance.
1: Yeah, I was aware of them. Or I guess I must have been aware of them because I was thinking that I didn't want to study any of that. <laughs> uh, so... Um, I, I bought the book and I, I was involved in what was then the early internet involved. Simply, I had an account and I was looking at all the bulletin board groups. And there was um, one group called Alt Paranet UFO and one was Alt Visitors Aliens. And I used to go to those. And I, I kind of got immersed in this culture. And long story short, after going through uh, books like Above Top Secret, and then I quickly uh, looked for bibliography of other relevant books I became very persuaded early on that this was a topic of genuine concern to our national security leadership back circa 1950 and I just thought okay I want to find out why there's this huge discrepancy why why does this look real and yet why is it ignored and with that
0: or or why is it why is it by policymakers publicly ignored
1: yes exactly so they publicly ignored it and it didn't take long before i became aware that there was at least a nice cache of documents that had been released through the freedom of information act uh you know this is the early 90s and by this time the the real heyday of the ufo FOIA documents was in the late 70s really the jimmy carter years maybe a little bit of the early reagan years uh, a lot of A lot of stuff came out. So it was all available for me to read. And it was quite evident that there were uh, formally classified memos that were describing violations of sensitive airspace by objects that were not supposed to exist. They were disc-shaped. They moved in incredible ways uh, and all of that. So I I realized, okay, they're taking this seriously. They're dismissing it publicly. That's an obvious cover-up. Let's find out. And so really what my work Was As a result of that is I wanted to – back then I wanted to, as it were, mainstream the UFO subject into the broader context of America and and really world history. So uh, what I tried to do with UFOs and the National Security State, both of those two volumes, was to look at the important UFO sightings and history and events – also to look at the important developments in research about UFOs that is from independent researchers um, and like how they were figuring it out and then also really looking at policy and trying to understand how all of those things wove together. So I I tried to craft a narrative that moved the UFO story along in those years at the same time really dealing with it from a cover-up angle and flavoring it, I guess we could say, with some broader historical trends at the same time. I mean, you know, the world was going through a lot of changes from the 1940s until the end of the century. So I tried to capture a lot of that as well. And that's really the story of those two books, which uh, particularly the first volume, which I completed in the year 2000, uh, took me about five years to write that book. And that really was my education in the UFO field. I started when I was researching that in ninety three ninety four, at truly ground zero of knowledge of UFOs, I really didn't know much of anything, and so I got myself up to speed as much as I could. I read a couple of probably a couple of hundred books that were a lot of them were out of print. I had a I had a buddy here in Rochester, New York, where I live, who was a used book dealer, and this is in the nineties before everything was on the web, and I remember he helped me hunt down a lot of books. I did a lot of interlibrary loan remember those, and just acquired as much of a library as I was able to, and I did a pretty good job, and then I, uh, for every book that I read, I I really tried meticulously to uh, lift out, rip all of the factual data that I could, and to organize that chronologically with proper citations and so forth, so I ended up creating a massive uh, chronology of the UFO subject that actually became the foundation of my of my historical narratives that's how i was able to write the books that i did i had i amassed a very uh massive database uh which i hand wrote all of it or hand typed it all so it, it actually helped me to reinforce the information that i was getting as well so it wasn't just like reading and then you know i, I was really writing out a lot and it uh, was very helpful for me. So I became – I think I became a quick study on it. And within five years, I had finished my first book, which that was a 500 – that wasn't my doctoral dissertation, but <laughs> it was a lot better than, than the dissertation would have been. And it was a 500-page book, and I got that done in 2000. And after that, uh, I became a known person in the UFO field.
0: I guess one of the things that attracted me to your work is that your books are as big as mine because <laughs> monuments they, grew to 500 and some – You know, my publisher said, for God's sake, hold on and write another book.
1: Yeah, they're too long. I mean the first one was 500. The second one was over 600 pages and I thought, good grief, I'm just going to kill myself. So the After Disclosure, which I co-authored with a great, great guy, Bryce Abel, um, that was only three – 100 and change. But then I ended up doing UFOs for the 21st century mind a few years after that, and that's a little over 400. I just finished another book actually on, um, on aliens themselves. i try tried to do my own little analysis of it, and that's just a little over 200 pages. So that's a shorter book, but mm. um, so they're all over the place.
0: Mm. Now, most of your sourcing for this up until, shall we say, recently when you had established a reputation in the field, was basically public sources, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Books, uh, out-of-print books, you know, Kehoe, the Lorenzans, Edward Mm. Ruppelt, and all the way through. uh, But see, you looked at this
0: data, which had been out there for decades. You looked at it through a completely different lens. This is what attracted me to your work in the beginning, because I said, my God, this this guy has foreign policy experience. He's got geopolitical experience. He's got real-world grounding in the weirdness of human political dynamics, and he's looking at this through that lens – And your conclusion was, and these two volumes are, you know, they're they're definitely, you know, you you can break your back if you pick them up wrongly.
1: (laughs) Well, my conclusions, uh, I try to be pretty cautious about my conclusions, particularly particularly in the first of those volumes, but really in both of them. And the conclusion, however, was that there is absolutely a genuine, inexplicable UFO phenomenon, inexplicable in any conventional sense I should say Um, and moreover that the uh, established authorities of our world at least some of those established authorities know enough about this and are are hiding what they know from the rest of us so there's a cover up so that was my conclusion it's real someone is here we are being lied to and um, and I guess that's it I tried to document
0: that as, as well as I was able to Hmm. I'm going to go to some of the things that you said earlier because I don't want to miss some of these key things. Um, At what point did people start calling you up? There's this thing called the Wilson leak we're going to talk about. Oh, yes. It's it's hard to trust. You know, remember that old joke that, that Art Bell and I used to exchange on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog? So, anybody can make anything up on the internet, look at you know the real world now and social media and the insanity of fake news and no one knows who to trust, etc, which I think is by design. I think this is part of the fog of war that's for a little later in the in the evening here. But what about things like sources once you'd established your rep, what was the first guy or gal who called you up or emailed you or dropped you something physical in the mail and said Psst, I got something you need to know. Um,
1: th- that hasn't been too many times. It's been a, a few times, and I guess what I would say is that rather than being given secret uh, documents and things like that, I had a number of interesting conversations with individuals who I think were, you know, well well plugged into certain. Certain things, and I would have quiet conversations with them. And you actually mentioned the uh, what I've called the Wilson League or the uh, Eric Davis notes. Uh, I was actually shown that full document in its entirety. Well, actually, no, not in its entirety. uh, But I was shown about three pages of that document uh, back in 2006 by someone. Okay, for those people who have no idea
0: including partially me, what we're talking about. Yeah. Tell us who Wilson was, what the controversy is around him, uh, what he reports to have said, to whom. In other words, the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, Admiral Thomas Ray Wilson
1: uh, was a um, he's an admiral and in the 1990s the U.S. Had, Navy. That's right. Had attained a, a very prominent role in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So In 1990 um, – golly, 1997, uh, he met – he was the vice deputy of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so Mm. that's almost a position known as J-2. He became – not long after that, he became chief of intelligence uh, for the Joint Chiefs. That's J-2. And in April of 97, and all of this is not in dispute at all, uh, he met with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer and astronaut Edgar Mitchell and a Navy commander named uh, Willard Miller and a few other people. They met – I think really Greer organized this, uh, but he brought Mitchell along, the astronaut, and he brought Miller along. And they essentially talked to Wilson – and um, a couple of other high-level people there, actually. This is in '97 now. This is in April '97. This is when when uh, Stephen Greer was really making the rounds in Washington, trying oh, to get people. Oh, April!
0: This was to... just after Hale Bopp. Remember Hale Bopp? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This and, is after... and the whole weird, you know, it's a it's a some kind of extraterrestrial spaceship, and right. and 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 the cult that killed themselves you know 39 members and yeah. some Applewhite and uh, heaven Yeah. yeah and Applewhite was cia one should mention so yeah ets right. this is right and after that speculations were very much in the news on everybody's mind around this this comet and particularly the weirdness well, 97 was a big
1: year in general that was the year of philip corso uh, that was the year of the 50th the... anniversary of roswell like ufo's were and the phoenix lights big and phoenix lights absolutely all of that was happening Now, uh, anyway, so Greer gave a presentation of some sort to Wilson and basically said that there's a UFO reality, there's a cover-up, and his argument was that it's being run by rogue operatives who are essentially operating beyond the formal purview of the United States government. And uh, as a representative of the U.S. government, he, he was basically saying to Wilson, you know, you may want to look into this and so forth. And... Wilson did look into this. Now, wow. Wilson claims that he didn't. Uh-huh. But I will just tell you in '06, long before this came out, this is all very, very quiet in '06, So the I meetings with, happened
0: in 97, but it didn't publicly hit the fan until like a year or two ago. That's right. That's right.
1: Although it was discussed very quietly among a lot of people.
0: But not at the general like, level of social media and the, you know, the internet crazies and stuff that's gone on now.
1: That's right. Um, you know, I – so I'll just – tell. so in, o, in uh, 06, a scientist very close to this, and I have never given his name up, and uh, I'm not going to unless, unless he dies before I do, then I will. But uh, I promise he doesn't want me to, and I, I won't do it. But in 06, he showed me three pages of documents, of notes that were taken in 2002 by uh, what we now know as Dr. Eric Davis, of, uh, formerly of the National Institute of Discovery Science, a uh, colleague of Hal Puthoff, and a very well-known and very brilliant man.
0: Hard-edged physicist. Yeah. Has, who's looked right. into faster-than-light technologies for NASA and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, very close. Didn't, with didn't he do a
0: book uh, or a study on the idea of extraterrestrial colonies with with the kind of analogy between terrestrial ocean colonies like the Polynesians and future interstellar colonies from Earth or by aliens in the galaxy?
1: Actually, I don't know that, Richard. Maybe he did. Um, I'm not aware of that study by him.
0: I will look it up and send it to you if I find it.
1: Yeah.
0: That was what got me intrigued with him.
1: Well, back in 06, when I was Hages, I wasn't given the identity of Wilson and I wasn't given the identity of Eric Davis. Um, But I was shown these notes that describe a conversation between a a scientist and a high-level government person about that government person's failed attempt to gain access to a a black budget special access program that he Ah. learned about that had to do with ET reverse engineering.
0: Very similar to Greer's briefing of the CIA director – I forget his name – Woolsey. We'll Woolsey, who claimed he yeah. couldn't get through a, a, some kind of barrier, a wall. It was like there are two universes created around this.
1: Yeah, I think that's actually.
0: Uh, I didn't know that Woolsey said that
1: to Greer. I'm oh, sure, yeah. But that. Wouldn't wouldn't shock me in the least. No, no,
0: no. That's one of the hallmarks of why I know that Greer's telling the truth. Yeah. Because if a bureaucrat ever says to you, "I don't know something," I mean, that's a huge red well, letter. Well,
1: and on this matter, Greer's talked about this as much as I've talked about it, and he's absolutely telling the truth about this. Greer Greer talked about this meeting years and years ago. Um, but anyway,
0: um, I didn't know it was. Deus okay, we're coming up to a break it. here, so. You know, I'll wrap it up here. So essentially, no, we, can accurate, we, can, we can just continue work. on the on on the other side of the rig. That's the advantage of long well, form radio. Perfect. Yeah, I don't want to truncate. You know, this is important stuff. Uh, what I want to do now, however, is to play you guys something, because this is our. Uh, you know, we do nice bumpers here on the other side of uh, midnight. This is in the spirit of Halloween. This is the sounds of Saturn from the Cassini probe. Here on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. NASA thought this was spooky. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, the Midnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members, because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.